Welcome to Teachers in America, a production of HMH where we celebrate teachers and recognize their triumphs, challenges, sacrifices, and dedication to students. We see you. We want our listeners to feel not only inspired by the practice, but to also have a renewed sense of community. I'm the Senior Director of Community Engagement, Noelle Morris. Each episode, I meet a new teacher friend and learn about the latest lessons and innovations from the classroom. Today, we are joined by Kyle Schwartz, who just finished her 10th year of teaching at Dowell Elementary in Denver, Colorado. But it was during Kyle's first year of teaching where she posed a simple yet powerful question to her students. What do you wish your teacher knew? Her students' candid responses inspired the hashtag I Wish My Teacher New movement and sparked a conversation about the realities students face and how schools can become more supportive, safe, and welcoming. A TEDx speaker and author of I Wish My Teacher Knew How One Question Can Change Everything for Our Kids and I Wish for Change, Unleashing the Power of Kids to Make a Difference, Kyle is a dedicated advocate for students. Kyle also uses into reading in her classroom, and I first met her through her co-teacher who happens to be a contributor to Teacher's Corner, HMH's trove of PD tools, resources, and videos. It's a small world in education, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you today. Now, let's get to the episode. Hey, Kyle, I'm so excited to have you. I want to start with like sharing with everyone how like you and I just met by circumstance. I was talking to a teacher that works with you, who works with me as one of our teacher contributors in Teacher's Corner. And she was like, I want to have this conversation, but I really want to include my interventionist, Kyle Schwartz. You probably read her book, I Wish My Teacher Knew. And Kyle Schwartz is your co-teacher? Like, it just seems so cool. And the next thing I know, you're on a screen in front of me. And we're just having this great conversation. I was like, let's bring it onto the podcast. So tell us a little bit about you and your teacher journey as a child. Did you want to become a teacher? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) I think I have a very unique teacher journey that gives me a different perspective on school and on my own classroom. But I grew up just absolutely hating school. And I write about it a little bit in my first book and just writing about like how I hated school. I just could never get it. I knew my teachers disliked me and I just never thought I would grow up to become my arch nemesis, an elementary school teacher. I did. And the way it came about is I took a year off from college and I joined AmeriCorps. And so I did a year of national full-time service in Washington, D.C., And mostly what I was doing was organizing large volunteer events. But part of it was an hour a week, you had to tutor for an hour a week. And as I was doing it, it just became like my favorite hour of the week. And I would try to get like my regular work done early so I could go and go into the schools and help out in the classroom. So that's kind of where I got bit by the teaching bug. And then from there, I finished school and I went to Chile in South America and worked with the Ministry of Education and the United Nations Development Fund there with the program and came back to Denver about 15 minutes away from where I grew up to to teach. And I've just finished my 10th year of teaching. Wow. When when you say you knew you weren't you weren't liked, it saddens me because my sister and I talk about this all the time that 
she knew she did not feel liked by teachers. And can you tell us a little bit more about how you knew that? Were there things that were said or the way they were said that would make you even think as a child or a young adult in high school, my teachers do not like me? Oh my gosh. I think a lot of the strategies teachers were using in the like nineties when I was in school really just had a pretty negative effect on me. I remember, I can clearly remember this one teacher. I had her for two years in a row and her strategy of classroom management was to write someone's name on the whiteboard. So if they weren't doing the right thing, she'd write their name on the whiteboard and put checks next to it. And I tell you this, my name stayed on that whiteboard. (laughs) It could have been written in Sharpie because it did not get erased. And I just remember like constantly getting missing recess. And I think really what I was doing was just you know, just like talking a lot or not being interested or not really knowing what to do and messing around a little bit or really not having strategies to connect with my peers and being like a bit abrasive or pushing back or not being able to solve problems in a productive way. (laughs) As a teacher, now I look at it and it seems like pretty low level stuff. But at that time, it was just really taken seriously. And I just felt like I stayed in the principal's office. Like my parents were constantly getting calls and it really affected the way I saw myself. I really truly believed I was a bad kid. Like there was good kids and there was bad kids and I was one of the bad kids. And there's a few of us in public education that are these former bad kids like myself. And I think we bring a really unique perspective because we know what it's like when schools don't work for kids. And we understand that like maybe schools can be less rigid and more adaptable to let all those kids in. And then also just for me to know like the devastation it causes to feel like you're a bad kid. And so when I have those kids in my class, as I often do, who are like trickier and already have that mindset that they are the bad kid, like it is a year long project to turn their thinking around and to really uplift them and show them a different side of themselves. So my, my story in school, um, unsuccessful as it may be, really has helped me be successful in the classroom today. Right. You don't want to repeat that emotional journey for any child. And I think about the difference between what you experienced and my own experience. I got kicked out of class a lot because I talked too much. Sometimes my mother would get called, sometimes not. But I'm so grateful that you found your way to the classroom. We're all meant to be here to find those experiences. What do we need to replicate, refine? Where do we need to put our voice down, our foot down and say, hey, this this really can't work this way anymore. And that's what I first noticed about you. Where does that boldness come from? It just seems so amazing. When you think about now that you've been in the classroom, you've been there for 10 years, were you just as bold as you are now at year 10 as you were in your first year? You know, I think it really has evolved. I think 
<laughs> even that word like bold, like I remember kind of the way I thought about myself when I was a kid or <laughs> what other people would have led, labeled me as like the bad kid or naughty or stubborn. Like Maybe I'm trying to rephrase this like strong, you know, like, and when I can see kids like that, oh, you're not just stubborn or like trying to boss me around or trying to make me mad. You're just strong willed. Like it, it changes the light that you see kids in. But was I just the same my first year teaching? No, I th- I think I wasn't. I really was focused on my own classroom. So even the I wish my teacher knew lesson that I did in my first year of teaching, and it was really powerful and I loved it, but I didn't tell anybody about it until years later. So I wasn't so bold on maybe a systemic level that I try to be now, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I write about in my second book, it's called I Wish for Change. And it focuses on how to help kids like have that voice and feel empowered and make a difference. And I talk about the strategies I've used that have worked. I'll use a strategy to advocate called me, us, now. And so it's okay, this is my story. Here's our shared value. Now will you do this? And so I use that to like just change some of the language in our school district. We were using like parent teacher conferences, all the official calendars and everything. And so it's it took like an oddly long time, but I was able to like advocate for them to change it to family conferences mm-hmm. just so that every family, whether or not kids were being cared for and raised by an actual parent felt, oh no, this is for us. This is the thing that that we're welcome into the school, just making that little language change. But yeah, I've also like thought about my students in a different way. And it's helped me become more bold to think about what they really need. I remember I had a student, he just jumped out in the middle of the lesson and ran to the door, ran to the window. And I I didn't even hear it until later, but he had heard a siren. And so there was a siren going off at our school because the police had come by to maybe meet and greet with another classroom. But that police presence was like very upsetting to him and very upsetting to a lot of other students and even to some other teachers. So to to just share that story with with the school and say, hey, we really need to think about how we're going to interact with law enforcement in a way that's going to be more helpful to our kids than harmful. So that just small things like that. And then also like on a greater level, I've really worked within my school district to just advocate for my students, but also to amplify their voices too and let them be the advocate. Speaking of, I wish for change, I'd started listening to part of the audiobook, and I loved how you were talking about, you know, my generation waiting for the world to change. This Gen Z, they're like, why do I have to wait? I have this voice. Everybody needs access to clean water. And I'm not just thinking of myself here. I'm thinking of the world. I'm thinking of the globe because... I'm so social. I know the world in a much different way than my generation, your generation. Tell us a little bit more how you made that connection and what you see the value of that empowerment doing 
to bring students to the here and now of classroom expectations and instruction? Maybe I haven't really thought about it in that way, but I think maybe it just comes from my own past and my own temperament and having all these ideas and being so strong-willed and having really strong opinions about what's fair and what's not fair. I just see that in my students as well. And to nurture that, I think is a really important job for teachers. It's funny that you would bring up the water example. I think a few chapters in, I tell the story of the local student here in Denver, Chitanjali Rao, and she was learning about the Flint water crisis. And mm-hmm. she said, it just appalled me. I was just so appalled that would happen. Like the water would be poisoned for all these kids. And because of that, she actually invented like a new lead detection device that's like more accurate and faster than what was even on the market. So like nurturing that, like those strong feelings that sometimes adults aren't comfortable with kids Mm -hmm. having, like anger and confusion and fear even to nurture that and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? I talk about it in that book, I Wish for Changes. There's this old saying that inventors really look for duct tape because where Mm -hmm. there's duct tape, it means that there's something that's like weak or ineffective and needs to be fixed. And that inventor can figure out a better way to do it. So I talk to kids too. Oh, looks like you're noticing some duct tape in our school. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. an essential question. Let's come into the classroom, you know, look around as I'm, as we're getting acclimated, where's the duct tape? Like I would love to have that opportunity to go back and ask students to see that. Actually did this year because of COVID, we were eating outside a lot, which is one of those things from COVID that's like, why didn't we do that sooner? So we'd always eat lunch outside, but there were some fifth grade girls who were just complaining, like it's so hot, like there's nowhere to sit. And I was talking to them like, yeah, it is hot. It is messed up that we don't have any shade around here. There's no benches to sit on. And they ended up writing a grant for our local school district foundation had a grant. And so they want $2,000 to get benches put into our school. So they put these benches like all along under the trees and along the playground. And when they wrote their grant, I'm really guiding them to this is an equity issue. Do all people feel comfortable when they come to our school? Like what if there are people who can't stand on that hot asphalt all time? What if there are people who are waiting to pick off or drop off a sick kid? Do they have a place to sit? And so to take that little bit like, oh, I'm hot. This is annoying. And instead of being like, okay, all these kids are whining to be like, okay, yeah, notice that. Yeah. Let's see. What does that mean that like our school doesn't have any benches for our community? It's like that thinking that really sees, sees, you know, this essence in kids and really mirrors it back to them in a way that they can really uh, make a difference with. Now, during your 10 years, I mean, you started as a third grade teacher and I you know, know from previous conversation and reading more of your bio that, you know, you had this, you have this passion for reading and you spent now the latter part of your career as an interventionist. Let's transition to, to talking about that. And first, like, what's the Kyle definition for interventionist? (laughs) 
I know, right? Every school district has their own meaning, their own acronym, all that stuff. So this year I was a reading interventionist and it did mean different things based on the kids I was working with. So for some kids, I was really walking through some like pretty intense intervention to either qualify them for special education or to determine that they wouldn't need it. And then for some kids, I was seeing like every single kid in the class in some ability groupings for reading. Basically, all throughout the day, I was pulling small to medium-sized groups and really working with literacy on them. When you begin to, you know, pull out the students, how how do you work with building that camaraderie and that relationship with you, as well as the relationship that they have with their core teacher, their homeroom teacher? Yeah, I think I was really lucky. All the teachers that I partnered with really valued relationships in their classroom. (laughs) And there was one, one first grade teacher every single day when I was coming to pick up her kids, it was at the end of her like social emotional lesson. And so I would sit in with it and answer the questions alongside the kid. Like one day it was like, how to flip your thinking from frustrated to empowered. And so to hear that in the general education classroom and then continue that that discussion up in my classroom was important too. But being an interventionist, you've got these tight timelines. And so I try to do like as much like community building and like an efficient and consistent way. So every day we would have the little question of the day and we would learn how to say hello in another language and it evolves into the kids leading the question of the day and the kids being the discussion leaders and just getting to know kids in that way. And then also reaching out to families talking with families and introducing yourself. You know, on the very last day of school, a mom was dropping off her son and I was like, oh, hey, like I've never got to meet you in person, but I'm his lunch teacher. You know, I'm with him at lunch and recess and she's like, oh, I've heard about you. Oh, my son, he left school. He's a little shy. No, 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 no. no. Your son is not shy. Like (laughs) he's always joking, always having fun. And just to be able to connect with families in that way to say, hey, here's these amazing things I'm seeing about your kids. I think that's really important too. So really just trying to find like ways that it's incorporated and consistent in my classroom to build those relationships with kids. It's just an all day long thing for me. You're working with your teachers and reading. I know your co-teacher, Amber, y'all use our program into reading. What have you learned from using any program the importance of connecting with what is happening in the tier one instruction and leveling that when your students come to you for that targeted support as an interventionist? Yeah, that is how we connected. It's like a little bit of a funny story. We at our school picked a new reading curriculum. And so I was very much like, oh, when are we going to start the committee to pick it? Because I will be on it. I was very interested in the new reading curriculum and from comparing and contrasting a lot of things and even modeling a few different curriculums in my classroom. The standout for me was into reading. So I am just so thrilled that we have gotten to use it the last year and moving forward for our students. So for me as an interventionist, it has been so great because the curriculum really has these beautiful, rich texts that I know that they're going to be working with in their general education classroom. And the texts and the books are just so good. I know I'm not going to like 
like step on the, <laughs> the general education teacher's lessons toes, right? There's enough with it that I can really either go deeper with some students or go back and build up some understanding. So usually on Mondays, I would preview the main text that kids would be reading that week. And so depending usually on what they were going to be writing about that week, I would focus a lesson on that and really do some language priming, make sure that they have a really solid literal understanding of it before they're going into the deeper comprehension lessons they'll be doing with their general education teacher. But then also with some kids, it was really about extending the lesson. And Oh my God. That was, I think, my favorite. We did so many amazing lessons to ex- take that text and extend it. I know one was beautiful text they used in third grade called Upside Down Boy. And it's this beautiful story of a kid who goes to school for the first time in English and he feels so upside down. And so we talk about that metaphor. We talk about the similes he uses. And then kids wrote their own upside down story of a time in their life where they felt upside down and they like, whoa, similes and metaphors through it. And it just was so beautiful. So for me, I think the first thing I go to when I'm partnering with that general education teacher as an interventionist is really to look at those beautiful texts and to see like where we can support kids understanding and then also where we can extend it. As someone who really has been studying and and thinking about and being focused on science of reading, how have you balanced that explicit systematic instruction for K to two and and all the way through? I mean, because foundational skills are are K to five with still having that, bringing that joy of text and reading and diversity Have you noticed a way that you are, you know, shifting that balance, but still having joy? Yeah, for me, I am just not the teacher that's going to be doing super boring (laughs) drill and kill work with kids. But as a teacher, I also know how important that those foundational skills are. And for our district, at least it really has been a journey. When I started with the school district, there really was no foundational skills curriculum, at least none that we were using in the schools I was working in. So it really, it's been a journey and teachers have really done a lot of professional development in order to understand the science of reading and understand Mm -hmm. the importance of those building blocks. But man, like phonics is fun. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) Yeah. We've done a few like really fun lessons. Oh, we were doing AR, like our controlled vowels, I think with the first graders. And at the end of it, we had a smarty party and we made little party hats with our AR words. And we wrote all the AR words from the spelling test on it. Just finding like cute little ways to do that. But then also like... (laughs) You can't get to those beautiful, joyous, like humanity affirming moments in literature if you can't sound out the words. So to value those beautiful, rich moments in, in, in literature and in reading that we do as teachers, like we have to do that building, building up work. And the cool thing is if you do it and you have a systematic curriculum and a way that kids are developing all those language skills, all the phonemic awareness skills, all the phonics skills. When you have that for kids, they will learn to read. And then they start to see themselves as readers. And then like 
they start to look at themselves as someone who can figure these things out and who can explore the world through books and through reading. And that there's nothing more joyous than that. Hey, teacher friends. I want to tell you about the Teacher's Corner, a community of teachers, learning experts, and coaches gathered in one place to support you with a new kind of professional learning. Bite-sized, teacher-selected, and teacher-driven. We include this digital experience with every HMH program on Ed. With on-demand sessions, lesson demonstrations, program support, or practical resources, Teacher's Corner lets you choose how you interact with our content. I like to think about it as inspiration on demand. And because we like extending our connections to wherever teachers are, we also have a Teacher's Corner from HMH Facebook group that is growing every day. So don't hesitate. Join me and the rest of the community at HMH. We are always in your corner. Now, back to the episode. What brought about that lesson, what I wish I knew? And because I... I'm thinking you didn't start off by saying, hey, I'm going to create a lesson that is meant to go viral. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell us, like, you know, what, where were you when this idea came to you? How did you structure it? And, you know, I'm thinking in some of these instances, you might not have thought too long about it. You might just have thrown it out there. Tell us, tell us how it came to be. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. You know, it was just my first year of teaching. And I just felt like I really wanted to connect with kids. It was quite a ways through the school year, if I remember. And I just like wanted to find out what was happening in their life. And instead of making assumptions about them, I just let them tell me. So I really did just write on the whiteboard. I wish my teacher knew blank. And I passed out a bunch of like post-it notes. And that was the first time I had done that lesson. And for me, it was really a powerful experience because whether a kid told me something like really serious or really light, or maybe was saying that they needed some more resources, that was valuable information. What do you want me to know? What do you think is the most important thing? And so that, that was really powerful. But I think honestly, teachers have been doing this type of work for so long. Like we've all had some way that really works in our classroom that we've really found that we connect with students just based on our own identities as teachers. And for me, I really did find this note from my students. I found an old, I wish my teacher knew note in my kitchen. And I decided to post it to my brand new Twitter account with my like tens of followers. And that's, that's where (laughs) teachers started seeing it. They started trying out the lesson in their classroom and talking about it online. And then from there, a journalist somehow saw all these teachers talking and wrote an article about it. And that's where it just went nuts and went crazy. And the, the my students were on like every major media outlet. Like they were talking about what it's like to be a kid today and telling adults like what they want them to know. What is it that adults need to know? So it, it really was this like crazy serendipitous moment where the social media does what it does. But I think it's been a powerful tool in helping kids amplify their voice and really be heard in a way that I think is 
able to be accepted by adults. Like this idea of what do you wish for? It's, it's something that as an adult, we don't feel threatened by that. We can really receive it. So that's where the lesson came from. And I am still astounded that it's still being talked about sometimes today and to get messages from teachers who have used it in their classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's been really amazing. I, I find it to be something that is so genuine and was meant to be something, but sometimes it's that moment of, wow, just that one little statement, what all, what all you can learn. And you can even learn, you know, who, who needs quieter space or doesn't want you necessarily to know something right now and they might come back to it. But when I went back into this thinking of, okay, it's 1979 in middle school Kyle, if you would have asked me like what I wish my teacher knew, mine would have been directed to my PE teacher where you have to see, physically see, I'm, I feel okay saying this word. I, you know, I hope it's okay, but I'll say overweight, but I referred to myself as I was a chubby girl. I was a chubby kid. And in 1979, material was not stretch, stretchable. Like, I didn't like getting dr- dressed in front of everybody. Like, mm-hmm. I was never going to look the same in those red shorts with the white lining around the leg. And I would have, like, those would have been the two things. Like, I wish you knew, I hate this, and how much energy I'm spending getting past this moment of embarrassment. And that my second would have been like, I'm never going to be able to climb that rope, even get my foot on the first knot. So why do you keep putting me in this situation? Like, could you just (laughs) stop? And so I've been thinking about this in the sense of how cathartic it is as a teacher to just go back and write a letter to your former teachers and what you wish they would have known. So it, brings it more back into your presence to keep moving and staying focused in the profession and staying focused on what matters because our profession is like losing teachers. I mean, Mm -hmm. people are wanting to leave. And when you think about what you're doing as a continuing with writing books and as an author, how are you looking at that in relationship to what's going on today? Like, where do you want to put your voice? What's the topic that's driving you right now? Ooh, I I remember I was asking someone local here in education and I was asking her, all the good work happening? Like where, what industry or what department is really making the biggest difference for kids? I just wanted her to tell me, okay, do this or or, go work for this organization or think more about this topic. And she, and unfortunately she didn't give me that nice easy answer. She said, Kyle, what is making the biggest difference for kids is when all of these different ideas and industries and fields are working together. Mm -hmm. And when 
everybody is like coming and collaborating together. So maybe it's the policy side, maybe it's the curriculum side, our experts in mental health, when all that is coming together, that's where the difference is being made. That has been on my mind a lot. Like, how do we get people to come together to really make changes that need to be made in education? Like just what you were talking about is like, school did not fit you. Like, maybe the school needed to change a little. And so how can we make school fit everybody and be a welcoming place for everybody? And there needs to be maybe some more like coordination between all these different fields and all these different like areas of expertise and like having that, that idea of bringing the people together has really been on my mind a lot. And finding that like synergy between all of our different areas of expertise. Where where would you see yourself beginning? Like, what would be your first outreach? Oh would gosh, you start, no. would you start? <laughs> I mean, I know, I know that's a hard, I know that's a hard question. You're like, well, I'm not prepared for that. But you know what? I don't have an answer for you. I did not mean to throw you a question where you're like, hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, girl, I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna spend. I'm spending my summer like mulling that over, mm-hmm. finding like where I really want to direct these like my energy moving forward. I feel like the last few years, everybody in education, like it's just, our energy has just been hijacked by this pandemic and we've been putting out fires and we've been trying to make things work as well as we possibly can. But now as we move into a new period of time with this pandemic, I think a lot of teachers are having that question, like moving forward, where do I want to put my efforts? Where, what am I most passionate about right now? So if you're that teacher out there, I am with you. <laughs> right. And I think the other thing I should also say, like, shame on me, like, but I, I feel like if people who are, who are listening to our podcast know this, but I should always say it and lead with it is let's start here. It's part of our mission and vision at HMH is teachers first. Like let's amplify and give teachers that voice. Let's hear from them. They have phenomenal solutions. They have been in there. They're experiencing it, whether it's with our programs, what's happening. Let's just ask. I think it's a fascinating time to be in education, even though it doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean there's not duct tape and things need to change. But I think it's a very exciting time to put your voice into and to be in education, regardless of your role or, you know, whether you're in the classroom or you're an interventionist or you've decided to move in to be a reading specialist or coach for a year. What is your advice for a new teacher who is starting the profession I actually had some student teachers and some parents at our school that are actually getting their first classroom and becoming certified teachers. So I've actually had this conversation like IRL a few times this year. And I think one of the things I told them just very concretely was like, you need to have a time that you leave every day. There needs to be a boundary to the amount of time like you give to education and to school and to like even to your students, there needs to be a boundary on it because you need to be way more protective of 
like your own personal life than I unfortunately have been. (laughs) So learn from me, put a limit on it, put a time limit. (laughs) One of my friends actually made me do it this year. She's like, okay, you need to leave at five o'clock every day and I'm going to check in with you. And a month from now, we're going to brunch and I'm going to see if you left on time every day. (laughs) So like 10 years in, my friends are even having these interventions with me. So I'm hoping that some of them learn from my mistakes and put a boundary on it. Another thing I have told them is kind of keep your great ideas in check. I remember as a like baby new teacher, like I would have all these great ideas and I'm like, oh, I can make this thing and I can put all these different things in buckets and then kids can do this and have all these like great imaginative ideas. But I at some point needed to learn to put those in check and really focus on the essentials. Focus on making sure kids have what they need every day. Like I was prepared for my lessons. I had read through and thought through their texts instead of some of the more exciting, fun things that you see online sometimes, like really going to those essentials first. Mm -hmm. And after you have that done, then you can have great ideas, (laughs) but you need, there needs to be like a, like a minimum, minimum standard before you get those great ideas. Cause what I would do is I would just do everything Mm -hmm. and then I would have no time for anything. And then I would just always feel overworked and stressed out. So really being like choosy about where you put your efforts. I've told them a lot. And then the other thing I've told them too, is don't buy a bunch of stuff. Yes. (laughs) Like us teachers, we are hoarders. Trust. I'm speaking from a place of knowing, like we are hoarders. We see things and we're like, Oh, I have an idea for that. I might use it one day. I told them like, don't do it. Don't just (laughs) don't buy a bunch of stuff. So those are my advice. My advice was like, put a boundary on your time, like really be choosy about where you put your extra effort and don't buy a bunch of crap at the dollar store. So true. Or pick up things on the side of the road because it looks like a great chair that you need to clean just a little bit. Or the hallway too, man. Mm. Teachers are thieves. You leave something in the hallway, it's somebody's going to take it. So total total teacher life. (laughs) And you need that accountability partner. I often, I, I'm, this is a true story. So I got to go to ASD. My, it was my first year in a new school, new principal. She loved going to conferences. She did it. She did this random drawing. Five of us got chosen. It's 1998. It's like, this is my first time on an airplane too. And I remember walking down my hotel floor and I looked down and I'm like, I think somebody must've had some sort of party. And I was like, is that a, a crate? You know, yeah, wine bottles men are being there. I think that's a wine company, like, you know, burned into the side. I'll just cover that up. That would make a great bookshelf. I brought those two wine things back from San Francisco all the way back to Orlando, Florida. And I was like, what was I thinking? Like, <laughs> I am sure there are teachers out there that are like, yes, me too. I mean, <laughs> including I, myself. I, and I, you know, and granted, I don't want anybody to feel guilty. Like I was proud of that, but I, I'm with you. Like I could have gotten back a lot of energy had I learned to edit. Edit. You know? That's a great, succinct way to put it. What are you seeing that's driving some of parent or family members, people who've been, who are on the PTA, which that's another thing. Like that's parent, 
teachers. Okay, well, that goes full circle back to what you were previously <laughs> saying. But in yeah, I have life, a chapter in the first book. I think it's called like All Families or Welcoming All Families. And it talks about like the language that we use in schools and gives a few tips on for teachers and school districts to use when thinking through that language. But yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in teaching that maybe we can just rethink how we phrase it. Maybe it has served its purpose and we can iterate in a different way. I have so appreciated our conversation and this episode. I do ask every teacher this question, just like if you were a sports star, just as if you were going up to get your Oscar or going up to present, there's a walk-up song. It's, it's meant to be part of that grounding of, I got this, I'm ready to go, I'm your champion. This is going to be the best lesson you've ever experienced. If we were to think about what's on your playlist, what would be your walk-up song as you're going into school, into your classroom? Well, I've actually been thinking about this because I know you ask it to everybody. So it's like, okay, let me think about it. And I was trying to think of some like good, deep answer. But really the song that just kept coming into my mind is like a song from like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And it's called, This Is Why I'm Hot. And it's, This Is Why I'm Hot. This Is Why I'm Hot. And the reason why it just kept coming into my brain was kind of literal. We would take the kids on field trips every year to see the Rockies, our baseball team here in Denver play. And so that song, like just every single batter had that song one year. And so like just having that memory of being in the like nosebleed section with my whole class and like all of them dancing around. I think that's the energy that I would want to bring to my walk walk up song. I love that advice. And I'm going to be walking around today in my house. Like this is why I'm hot. Forget about not being able to climb the rope in 1979. (laughs) Let that, let that go. Like I so connected with you the first time we met this conversation only cemented that I wish you so much luck with your third book. And I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to you with some more ideas about, you know, how we can keep making that connection on bringing different people, different industries together to have have those crucial conversations so that we can help fix where there's duct tape. Yes, absolutely. Don't be afraid of the duct tape. Don't ignore the duct tape. Use it as a arrow that's like pointing you in a different direction. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Teachers in America podcast, please email us at shaped at hmhco.com. Be the first to hear new episodes of Teachers in America by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate, review, and share with your network. You can find the transcript of this episode on our Shape blog by visiting hmhco.com forward slash shaped. The link is in the show notes. Teachers in America is produced by HMH. Until next time, your friend, Noelle.